Intentionally Grounded. I'm your host, Brian Willie, along with my co-host, John Kessler. Episode 78 features former NFL quarterback and wine entrepreneur, Drew Bledsoe. Drew relived some of his biggest moments in his playing career from attending Washington State to being selected as the number one overall pick and playing in the Super Bowl. We also discuss how he dealt with and overcame adversity throughout his career and transferred those leadership qualities into a coaching career at the high school level and an emerging wine business that ranks as one of the best in the United States. This season, Intentionally Grounded is partnering with First Down Playbook. For coaches looking for a playbook software that is user-friendly and can deliver the clarity necessary to share and communicate your scheme with coaches and players alike, check out First Down Playbook. For more information, check out their website at firstdownplaybook.com. And for our listeners of our show, enter the code IGFB20 when purchasing individual or program memberships to receive a discount at checkout. Again, that code is IGFB20. Don't forget to check out our website at igfootballcoach.com for all our blog posts and podcast episodes. And check out our newly released YouTube channel that houses the video cast version of our podcast episodes as well, along with additional content related to leadership, football, and coaching development. Season 3, Episode 28 of Intentionally Grounded with Drew Bledsoe starts now. All right, today we're joined by NFL former quarterback Drew Bledsoe. Mr. Bledsoe, introduce ourselves to your audience and talk a little bit about your background football. Yeah, you know, um, I had the great privilege of playing NFL quarterback for 14 years, uh, first nine with, uh, with the Patriots until that uh, disrespectful uh, backup quarterback of mine uh, came in when I got hurt. Uh, Tom Brady came in and, uh, uh, and took over, and I didn't get my job back, which was disappointing. But, uh, but then I got, to, um, I got to go from there. I got to go play for the Buffalo Bills for three years, which was a fantastic experience. Just absolutely love being in Western New York. The fans there are so loyal. And, and uh, I tell people playing in Buffalo is like playing pro ball in a college town, which I just really love. Uh, and then from there, my last two years were uh, with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I got to go down and play in Dallas, which was really an interesting experience. Sort of like pitching for the Yankees. Like either pe- people either love you or hate you, but they definitely have strong feelings about uh, Cowboys quarterback no matter what. Um, uh, and then after that, I decided it was time to retire. Uh, uh, but retirement for me didn't mean just – you know, riding off into the sunset, you know, I was only 35 years old. So, um, you know, I had to find something else to be passionate about. And um, my wife and I had a shared passion for wine. Uh, while I was playing ball, my little hometown, Walla Walla, Washington, that I grew up in, um, had become one of the great wine, grape growing regions of the world. So uh, when I left football, I was able to, to return home to uh, Walla Walla, return home to my hometown uh, and start a winery, started Double Back Winery. Uh, and um, our intention all along was to, you know, not just make wine, but try to make wine that would compete on a world stage. And, and uh, proud to say that we've done that. And uh, over the last 13 years, I guess, uh, we've built Double Back into a, uh, a real business. Um, on top of that, I'm happily married, four kids, three in college, um, coached uh, high school football for six years out here in Bend, Oregon, which was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Uh, play a lot of golf, like to ski, like to ride bikes. Uh, and, uh, you know, so far, uh, so far, it's been a good run, um, and uh, we'll see what's next. Now, you spent your collegiate career at Washington State. So when you're going through the recruiting process, obviously it's close to home where you grew up, but what appealed yeah. to you about the school, and what were some of the biggest lessons or impacts that Washington State had on you personally and professionally? Yeah, perfect, perfect, great question. Uh, so when I was being recruited, you know, this is the good old days where if you were 
uh, going to try and get recruited. You had to spend a whole bunch of time with some VCRs and dub tapes and then send them out, you know, via snail mail. You couldn't just uh, make your huddle video and send out the link to all the coaches. Um, and being from a little tiny, small town, you know, I actually had to work to be recruited a little bit. Uh, so I sent videos around to a handful of schools that I was interested in. Uh, ended up whittling that down to four schools that I took trips to. Went to, uh, obviously, Washington State. Uh, went to the University of Washington. Uh, took a trip down to Stanford. Uh, and then my last trip was to University of Miami, which for a kid from Walla Walla, Washington, in the middle of nowhere, uh, getting on a plane and flying to Miami and, <clears throat> and sitting on the beach was quite an experience, but it was just too far away from home. Ultimately, my decision came down to a, a coach that I just really, really fell in love with. You know, Mike Price was um, just an amazing coach and uh, still a great friend to this day at Washington State. Um, and as far as lessons learned, um, one of the most important lessons that I learned when it, uh, it started to, uh, to look like I was going to be able to have a career in football, not just, uh, not just a college career, but to continue to go on from there. I had a, a sports information director um, that came to me and he said, he goes, uh, he goes, make sure that you realize uh, that you really represent two people. Um, there's the football player guy. Um, and that guy um, you know, is a good player, and he's going to do everything he can to win football games on the field. But then when you leave that, um, you got to keep the, the other person intact, and that's the, uh, the normal person that lives in everyday life. Um, and as long as you keep those two separate in your mind, um, <clears throat> you, can, you can do both effectively. If you start to cross the lines and uh, you start to get your self-worth um, and your life uh, too connected with the outcome of the last game on the field, that's when you set yourself up for, for real problems. So I uh, was able to do that uh, for the most part. I tried not to bring it home very often when I was playing ball. Uh, hopefully my wife and kids would attest to that. But, um, but that was an important lesson I learned when I was there. Then you obviously translated that into becoming the number one pick of the New England Patriots, as you talked about before. So entering the league as the number one pick is obviously a very unique experience. What was it like for you handling that kind of pressure and what were some of the biggest challenges you had to endure as being the number one pick? Well, the biggest challenge um, is that when you're the number one overall pick, um, particularly as a quarterback, uh, by definition, you're going to a team that wasn't very good the year before. <laughs> you know, you don't, unless there's a crazy trade, um, you know, you don't get to go to the, uh, the, the reigning champion. You, know, you go to the team that finished last. Um, and so that's a big challenge, first and foremost. Um, you know, going to Boston uh, was an eye-opening experience. You know, I went from small town high school, small town college uh, into um, one of the most passionate uh, sports towns in America. Um, and, you know, learning to deal with, uh, you know, four or five newspapers and people that were competing for space and on the, uh, on the front page, uh, you know, it was, that was kind of interesting all of a sudden uh, from a very protected environment into a, uh, you know, really into a wolf's den, um, you know, was, was, uh, that was an interesting experience, but, um, the refuge always was when we got to go on the field and play, you know, and, and for me, you know, football is still football. It was much faster, obviously, when I got to the NFL, um, there was a lot more to process, uh, but ultimately it was still just football. And that was really where I found my refuge when, uh, the times were the craziest, um, had to deal with Bill Parcells as my coach, my first four years, which, you know, I don't think anybody that, that's ever played for him would say that was a real treat. Um, but, uh, uh, um, 
you know, one thing, the one method to his madness was that Sundays seemed pretty easy because I got to get away from him. He could only be, he could never, never be closer to like 30 yards from me when I was on the field. When I was on the practice field, he'd stand right behind me and just critique every single thing I did. So uh, I really loved Sundays when, uh, when, when he was my coach. Um, but we went through, made it through, and then we won our, our last four games my rookie year, which gave us some uh, momentum going into the second year. And, and in my second year, we made the playoffs for the first time in a long, long time. Um, and, uh, you know, the teams that I was a part of when we were in New England, um, I think all of us that, that were there kind of in the you know, early 90s or, or early to mid 90s, and we take a lot of pride in the fact that we started with a team that was that was really, you know, last. Uh, and by the time uh, by the time we were done, it was a very relevant franchise. And obviously, from from then on, they've gone on to be maybe the best sp- uh, you know, sports franchise in the whole world uh, in terms of uh, their their continued success. Um, but we take a lot of pride in the fact that we were there when it changed, and uh, and so that was a cool experience. Then in 1996, uh, your Patriots were able to go play the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl. And, you know, obviously that didn't necessarily go as according to plan for you guys, but it's still a pretty unique experience for a quarterback or anybody playing in that game. So for those who have never experienced that, what's the preparation like for a Super Bowl game compared to any other game that you prepared for? You know, it's um, the preparation side of it is, is unique in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, one is you're, you're at a different spot. You know, we, we practiced at Tulane where the, the Super Bowl, <clears throat> that first Super Bowl was in New Orleans. Um, so you're in a different location. But the other thing is for that week, you're the center of the sports universe. You know, there's no other football games. Um, all the attention of the entire sports world. Uh, and even back then when you did, when you had, I don't know, probably one one hundredth of the, uh, the media outlets in 96 that you do today, uh, even then, um, you know, media day was crazy. You know, you're dealing with uh, reporters that uh, don't ne- aren't necessarily used to covering football or even sports. Sometimes, you know, you get like weird questions like, "Hey, why is the football shaped the way it is?" Like, like just these like these these off the wall questions. Um, but then when you take the field on game day, uh, you do get a strong sense that this game is bigger than any other, um, and it takes a little while. I think anybody that ever played in that game would, would um, probably say the same. The first time you play in that Super Bowl game, it takes a little while to settle down and realize, hey, this is just a football game, right? You know, we're just we're going to play football. You know, we're obviously playing against, you know, one of the two best teams in the league that year, so you have a big challenge. But once you settle down, you realize it's just football. Uh, unfortunately, Desmond Howard ruined that game for us, man. I mean, we were actually had just taken the lead, and freaking Desmond Howard takes the ensuing kickoff back for a touchdown, and then he had another big punt return. Um, I had a chance to do college game day with Desmond this last year, and I, I, I punched him in the shoulder. I was like, hey, man, you ruined my Super Bowl, bud. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was still it was an amazing experience. And then, as you alluded to, you spent the latter part of your career in Dallas and in Buffalo, but unfortunately you were kind of limited by injuries during that portion of your career. So how difficult was it for you to deal with those injuries, and how did you handle it and overcome that adversity, especially when some of your former teams were doing so well? Yeah, you know, um, uh, when you play quarterback, you know, you, you, you do everything that you can and prepare as hard as you can. Um, and there certainly are lots of things that I could have done differently in those, in those times during that stretch. Um, but you are a little bit at the, uh, at, the, at the mercy of what's going on around you. And unfortunately, um, you know, in a few of those years, we ended up with multiple offensive line injuries and we had lots of things going on that, that really limited us. Um, and it bums me out, you know, I mean, shoot, 
in both situations, you know, I really had grand visions of, uh, of uh, taking those teams on to a championship um, and it, and it, uh, it didn't work out, but, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the things you learn um, in ball and it's translated into business for me and really into my life is you learn to embrace adversity. Um, not, you know, you're never going to wish for adversity. You don't want bad things to happen. Um, but you can really grow through adverse times. Um, and I saw that in, in football, uh, both personally and within our teams. Um, and I certainly see that in business. You know, when we face business adversity, we've gotten to the point now where we, when, when those things happen, we're like, okay, we didn't want this to happen, but man, we're going to get a lot better coming out of this. Um, and, you know, so that's really the attitude that I took when, um, you know, when things were not going perfectly, that was a chance for real leadership. Um, when you're, uh, you know, when you're winning games 40 to zero and, and, uh, you know, everything's going along swimmingly, um, you know, leadership is pretty easy and pretty much anybody wants to step to the forefront in those times. But, uh, but when things are going sideways, that's where you have to really step up and, and, and be a true leader. When you look back at your career as an entire picture, how would you like your legacy to be defined? <laughs> you know, I, I think the thing that you strive for if you're doing things right is you strive for uh, the respect of your teammates um, and you strive for the respect of your opponents. Um, and I know throughout my career, I had both of those. Um, now, like I said, things didn't go perfectly, obviously, but, um, but uh, you know, ultimately those are the things that you want to come out of it with. Uh, and it goes a little bit back to what I, you know, commented on earlier. Uh, you know, there can be a perception from the outside, from people that aren't competing with you or people that are competing against you that can be very different from what's actually, um, you know, going on within, within your own team and, and with your opponents. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, if I had to point to one thing that, uh, that, that I'm proud of coming out of that, it would be that. I know that I had the great respect for my teammates and great respect for my opponents. Um, you know, ultimately the wins and losses determine, uh, you know, how you're perceived from the outside, uh, but from the inside, um, you know, that was, that was, that was a good thing to come out of it with still keep in touch with a lot of guys that I played with still talk to a lot of the guys I played against. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and that was cool. And I think the other thing that I would, you know, that I would point to that I'm proud of coming out of my career is I, I think I, I always tried to conduct myself with dignity and, and, with, and with some class um, regardless of how things were going, um, you know, and that's both publicly and within the team. Um, and, uh, um, so when I look back on it, you know, that's a part that's very much within my control. Um, and I like to think that the parts that were within my control, I did a good job of. Now transitioning to your coaching career side of things at the high school level, you know, in Bend, Oregon, you were able to coach some of your sons uh, during their high school careers. So, Tell us a little bit what that experience was like as a father and for, you know, future fathers out there who are going to coach their sons, what advice would you pass on to them? Well, you know, I think the, the, the biggest thing that I would point to um, is that coaching is a privilege um, and it's an opportunity, uh, especially at the high school level. Um, you know, we try to teach life skills. We try to teach, you know, character, work ethic, teamwork, self-sacrifice, you know, all of those kinds of things uh, that are really life skills. Um, and then if they learn some football along the way, you know, that was, that was cool too. Uh, but we really felt like our, our primary job was to teach those life skills. And, and um, um, now I'm getting to see some of that come back. You know, I got some of these guys that have graduated and gone on and now are graduating college. And, 
uh, out in the workforce and starting their own families and getting married. And, uh, and so now I've got a chance to have more of an adult relationship with some of those guys. And so that's the reward that I get from that is I get to be friends with these guys now uh, at an adult level. As far as coaching my, coaching my sons, um, they, they made it pretty easy because uh, they were very hard workers. They were great teammates. They were really smart football players. Um, and, you know, so I never had to be in a situation where um, or I had to bark at them. Or I could always point to them as examples for how you do things. Um, and uh, so that made it really, you know, really easy for me to do that. Um, you know, if they'd been screw-ups, um, you know, it'd be a different conversation. But thankfully, they were, um, you know, they, were, they, they did things properly. Uh, and that made, really made it quite easy. Looking at yourself as the offensive coordinator, what would you describe your philosophy as as a play caller? And, and maybe what were some of those core concepts that you may have hung your hat on as an yeah. offensive coordinator? There are a couple of things I'd point to. Uh, first, um, we tried to make sure the defense was never comfortable. Um, we tried to make sure that they had to defend the entire field and couldn't focus on just one thing. Um, um, you know, we tried to be simple offensively while still looking complex to the defense with, you know, some different formations and motions and so on, but ultimately running the same place so that they had to react, but we knew exactly what we were doing. Um, the other thing that, that, um, um, that I had to learn as a play caller, um, you know, you got limited time in high school, you know, you can't go install an NFL offense. Um, and as a, as a play caller and as a coach, um, I had to learn, Number one, that if, it, if there's something that you can't do well as an offense, you just don't do it, right? You don't try to force a square peg into a round hole. Um, but, you know, the complimentary side of that is that there are things that you do very well, then you continue to do those things and you try to do them in different ways um, and, and focus on what you really are good at and what your skill set is as a, as a team. Um, you know, we ended up being pretty balanced most of the time, run and pass. But there were games we'd come out and throw it every down. There were other games we'd come out and run it every down. But at the end of the season, we were pretty balanced. But balance was never – that was never a, uh, something that I found important. What I found important was finding um, where your advantage is. And if your advantage is in the passing game, you do that. If your advantage is in the running game, you do that. If your advantage is in play action or misdirection, then you do that. Um, and then we'd always have a couple of trick plays. Trick plays were always fun. The kids got fired up about them, and it was fun to draw them up and – you know, so if we saw something during the week and somebody else did, we'd just copy them and, and, and put in some, you know, cute little trick play. Um, but philosophically, from a play calling standpoint, those are the key factors. Now, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are quarterback guys, and they always are talking about how to train the quarterbacks. And so you have some that are in the camp are in more of a read progression type of thing when they're putting in their passing. And then there's others who are more coverage identification. Which one are you more of a supporter at the high school level, the read progression side of things or more of a coverage identification? It's a combination of both. Um, you know, what we would generally do um, is teach the quarterbacks to have a pre-snap read to try to identify what coverage they think possibly could be coming. Um, and then that would determine where their progression would go and which side of the field. Right. So, you know, if you, for example, if, uh, uh, if you got two high safeties, you know, it's generally either cover two or cover four. Um, and we would have um, part of the, the route progression that was used to attack that kind of defense. Um, and if, uh, if it was a single high safety, so you either got man or cover three uh, at the high school level, it's, it's fairly limited to those kinds of coverages. Um, then, you, uh, then you have another piece of the, of the pass route that you read versus that. 
Um, and then if you have blitz, you have an answer to that. You always have a, a hot route. So for me, it was a combination. I felt like it was important for uh, the quarterbacks to understand coverage and understand where the weaknesses were in particular coverages. Um, and then once they understood, you know, within some parameters, uh, what they thought they were going to get, then that would determine where their progression would go. Now transitioning into your career in, in the winery business, tell us a little bit, and you've kind of talked about it already uh, just in, in passing, but what really led you into wine? What made that a passion of yours? Yeah. And tell us a little bit about your career in the wine business. Yeah, another a couple things. Number one, we just like wine. You know, my wife and I like wine, so you've got to start there. You know, you're not going to get into that business if you if you don't like it. But uh, um, you know, secondly, um, you know, the wine business is really, really interesting. It's something you can learn about for your entire life. Uh, you start out, you're in land acquisition, so we, you know, we're kind of always looking for property to acquire. Then you're a farmer um, and you're growing grapes. Then you're into the production side of things and and, and trying to produce the best product from uh, from the grapes that you harvest, uh, but then you're into marketing um, and developing brands and developing brand stories and brand identities and, and market strategies. Um, and then you're into fulfillment and distribution and um, and then, you know, customer service at the end of the day. Um, and so it's been a continual learning process for me. Uh, the cool piece is that uh, um, there's so much carryover from being the quarterback of a team to running a business, um, you know, from, you know, teamwork. We talked about team earlier. Um, you know, if I, I don't, I, you know, I love wine and I know uh, just enough to be dangerous about the whole process. Uh, but if I was the one actually making the wine, we wouldn't be very good. Right. Uh, but I've got a you know, great winemaker and a great team. We have a great vineyard crew uh, that does that. And then on the uh, sales and marketing side, we've got great people that uh, have learned to treat all of our customers um, like family and, and they, uh, uh, you know, go the extra mile to make sure that people not only like and enjoy wine, but they like and enjoy the entire experience they have with our team. Uh, and then you get to the financial side, you know, shoot. I never thought I'd know as much about accounting as I do now. <laughs> I had to learn that because if you're not understanding, um, you know, where you're spending and, and what the result of that is and continuously analyzing that, then you, you know, then you're kind of just, you know, throwing it out there. And, uh, um, but the one overriding thing that I would say, uh, that's allowed us to be successful, um, you know, when you're, when you're a quarterback, every single detail matters, you know, when you're handing the ball off, do you put the ball in the proper spot to the running back? Uh, is your footwork proper? Are you carrying out your fakes? Then in your, you know, do you have good eye discipline? Are you seeing things the right way? Is you know, and then you get to coaching all the other positions and, for offensive linemen is their exact steps and their exact hand placement and then route stems, you know, all of these things. And in business, it's really the same thing. There are no small details. There are only details. And if you're really going to be excellent, you have to try to get every single detail done properly. Uh, if you let anything slide, then you get to give somebody else a chance to compete with you. Um, and so that translation uh, from ball to business has really allowed us to, to, to be quite successful. What's your ultimate goal for, for Double Back Winery? Where do you hope this business journey takes you? You know, um, well, I could read you our mission statement, but, but uh, um, ultimately in terms of where we go in the future, uh, we want um, methodical managed growth. Um, we're not trying to be the biggest winery in the world, but we do want to continue to grow. Uh, but we only want to grow, um, you know, we're, we're not going to grow for the sake of growth. Um, we're going to grow um, as we see demand. Um, 
you know, sometimes that's hard to forecast in wine because your, your product cycles are so long. You know, you're literally looking at, you know, three-year product cycles from the time you harvest fruit until you sell Cabernet. Uh, when it comes to planting vineyard, you're trying to forecast a decade into the future because uh, you've got three years before you have fruit and then four years, four more years, so seven years total before you have mature vineyards. Uh, and then from that mature vineyard, you got three years until the wine's out. So, um, uh, so we're not, uh, you know, we're not, we're not pedal to the metals. How fast can we grow? But we are growing. We're growing at a, you know, a pretty consistent double digit pace, kind of, you know, 17 to 20% a year. Um, and we'll continue to do that as long as we have demand there for it. Um, and, uh, in terms of what the future holds, we're just trying to build the best business that we can. Um, and, you know, we're not, uh, you know, it's, we got into it because we love it. We're not looking to build this thing and sell the business. We're, um, we're just trying to grow the best business that we, uh, that we can that um, allows us to uh, enjoy what we do on a daily basis um, and uh, at the same time uh, turn it into a profitable business. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. It's a continuous challenge day in and day out to figure out, um, you know, what we're doing near term and what our three and five and seven year, um, you know, forecasts look like. Um, but as a, as a, uh, a broad statement, we want to continue to grow, but only um, in a way that we can sustain it and also continue to enjoy it. And my final question for you, Drew, is you know, for those listening to the podcast right now, and if they want to consume or possibly get a taste of your wine, where are some of the places they could, could get that opportunity? We sell about, about 90% of our wine. We sell direct to the consumer uh, online. So they can find us at doubleback.com. We have a second winery. It's called Bledsoe Family Winery. Uh, Doubleback is this high-end, exclusive, uh, very small production, um, expensive wine. Bledsoe Family uh, Price points are a little more accessible. We make different kinds of wine: Cabernet, Raw, uh, Chardonnay, Rosé. Um, so we make um, we make a few different wines there. We have a wine club on that side. So um, if people want to dip their toe in the water with uh, without paying 100 bucks a bottle, um, you know they can they can go there. And at a hundred bucks, by the way, we still feel like we're a value uh, at a hundred dollars for double back. And you look at the scores and the, uh, the reputation that we have and you, you know, put us up against our California competitors that are in the same realm. Um, you know, we're many times, you know, one third the price of competitors in, in uh, you know, the Napa Valley and uh, same in Bordeaux, you know, for uh, wines that, that achieve the same scores that we achieve and you're in Bordeaux. Now you're spending, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a bottle. So, um, but yeah, if you want to find us um, and you want to dip your toe in the water, blood, water uh, Bledsoe Family Winery is where to start. Uh, if you're a, a serious wine connoisseur, uh, you want to start at the double back end. And uh, we truly feel like we're making one of the best Cabernets in the entire world. 